So uh, I'm going to invite Sarah to come up here. She just got back from Israel, and um, she wanted to know if, if I thought that you all would be interested in hearing about her trip. And I thought, I don't care what everyone else thinks. I would be interested in hearing about your trip. No, I didn't say that. Um, but she had a really impactful time. She was sharing with me the excitement she's had over uh, seeing some of the things that we read about in the Word. And so she has some slides, and, and she wanted to present those to us. So come on up, Sarah, and uh, share with us. People have asked if I'm happy to be back. Not today. It's a lot warmer over there. Um, okay, so Zach shared how I... I really had an exciting time over there. It was very life-changing, and I did ask him if I could share. And perhaps, um, rather foolishly, he said yes. He told me that I had 45 minutes, but he didn't specify when that starts, so I'll do my best. Um, but coming back, I understood, whoa, that moves. Sorry, Jerrica. Um, I understand the Bible better now. I understand more about the nature of Christ, more of my role as a Christian, and it's kind of this whole um, Bible college experience crammed into one week, and you come back quite overwhelmed. There are two sides to this morning. One is more academic. I just want to show you what it looks like. Um, we're going through Matthew, which is part of what led me to ask Zach, and you're reading about these places, and I wanted you to be able to see them. There's really nothing like standing in real places and experiencing the story that really happened and kind of marrying the two. So I will say this um, more than once. If you get the chance to go, just go. Um, so academically, and then I'll slow down a little bit um, in some parts where God just really grabbed my life. But we start in Joppa. This is the port town kind of close to Tel Aviv. Um, it is a town we know two things happened. Um, this is where Jonah set sail for Tarshish, and he gets diverted to Nineveh um, via the big fish sea liners. And this is also where Paul had the vision of the sheet coming down, the animals on the sheet, God telling him to kill and eat in the book of Acts. The thing about Joppa that you want to understand is it's not just the city of Joppa. You have multiple cities within cities in the form of concentric circles. So you have old Joppa, relatively small, and then as the city expanded later in history, you have new Joppa that goes around it. So Peter would have been in old Joppa, and there's only so many viewpoints that he would have had. Um, so if you can ignore the modern-day buildings in the background and just the sea and the trees and the lush and the green, um, beautiful spot. I don't know that I would have wanted to go to Nineveh either, to be honest. Um, but that's what Joppa looks like. We move to Caesarea Maritima. Good shot, right? I used my Google camera for that. You go to Google Images, you search, and it happens. Um, but it's a city founded by Herod the Great. You can see the harbor lines here. He wanted an enclosed harbor to keep the ships safe at night. Um, and he wanted a town that was successful. Herod the Great was also somewhat paranoid. Um, he was allowed to rule by the Romans, so he thought, I'm going to keep the Romans happy. I will name it Caesarea, and so he did. So you have um, a town named after Caesar by the sea, Caesarea Maritima. The Romans were really into entertainment back then, staying happy, living in the moment, so he put some things in there specifically for them. This is the remains of a hippodrome. Um, Ben-Hur, anybody? Charlton Heston, yes. Um, this is a hippodrome chariot races. They would have entered from the far left. This would have been the far corner. This is where all the drama happens. So this is where everybody wants to sit. Um, the line in the movie about there's no rules in the arena, definitely true. So if anything goes wrong, it's going to happen on that far turn. 
Also, um, Herod can't have a city without a palace, so we have his palace here. You can actually see the remains of the Hippodrome in the background, um, and then Herod's palace here. We're walking on it um, in all of the dirt and the plants and whatnot. And you can't have a palace without a swimming pool. That is his private pool. It's underwater now. Um, there's been an earthquake since he built it. I think two, but I know of one. Um, so now it's underwater, but that was his private freshwater swimming pool in Caesarea. He also built um, behind his palace would have been the theater. Um, this is where any entertainment would have happened. This is where any speeches would have happened. And we happen to know of a speech that took place in Caesarea Maritima, um, where the people compare Herod to not be a king, but be a god. And then God says, that's enough. Bye-bye, Herod. That's a speech that probably happened in that arena. Um, we moved from there to Mount Carmel. Um, this is where Elijah goes up against hundreds of people and says, you built an altar to your God, I'll build an altar to mine, and we'll see which one responds. Um, and God obviously responded to Elijah. Um, that happened on this mountain. There's not a whole lot on the mountain except a church, um, so not much to see there. But the valley you're looking at is the Valley of Megiddo, which is where Armageddon is going to happen in the future. So it was really surreal seeing past, present, and future all meet in this one spot. Um, forgive the haze. Going in September has its drawbacks. If you can see the highway, you can get an idea of the width or width of it. Um, it stretches all the way to about this line here, if you can see the mountain, and on the other side of it would have been Nazareth. That's the width of the valley, not the length. You can't actually get that in a camera shot. Um, I tried, and you can see I failed, um, but it keeps going on the left. We went to Nazareth, um, which I did not know this. It's a town founded on um, donkey trails. That's how they built their roads. And donkeys are skinny. And so then when they built the roads, they realized the cards didn't fit on them. So good luck driving around Nazareth because they didn't change the roads, um, which bringing a tour bus through was kind of interesting. But the, um, they took this hillside, hadn't been touched for 2,000 years. It was kind of just rocky and weird and oddly shaped and small, so they didn't put anything on it. So this group came along and said, let's make a replica of Nazareth so that tourists can walk through it and see what it would have been like. Um, so you get to walk through. They brought in sheep, and they brought in a donkey that loved to sing and kept us well and entertained for the whole 45 minutes, um, our poor tour guides. But the um, walking through it was really cool. The biggest thing that we kind of talked about was the synagogue. This is a replica, um, but it was made out of, they made first century tools, and then they built the synagogue out of that. So this is really what it would have looked like, which is kind of cool. And Zach's talked about it um, with the how the pews, if he could design it, would face each other. And I'll come clean. I always thought, okay, Zach, that's cute, but this is the 21st century, so um, let's move on. Now I get it. Um, having sat in there. You can't see my tour group because I framed the picture that way, but you can't sit anywhere in the synagogue without anyone seeing you. And the cool thing about that is when you talk about coming together as the body of Christ and learning about him and encouraging each other, how can you do that if you can't see each other? Um, and so sitting in a square and having um, just a time of reflecting on the Lord was really cool. The design of the synagogue um, was really cool. You have these pillars, and you can see by um, Mr. Tour Guide, the um, width of them, the diameter of them, is about the size of a human body, which is a lot bigger than these things. They're made out of stone, and they never heat up. So they cool down at night, and then in the day, 
It's hot outside, the stones are cool, they work as air conditioners and they cool down the room. The hot air then rises and goes up to these windows and get caught, it gets caught in the cross breeze and gets sent out. Um, so pillars cool the air and the hot air goes away. So the temperature difference is quite significant going into a synagogue because of that. So I thought that was a cool design. Um, I think whoever built the Coeur Wedding Chapel should study up on that, um, at least in the summer. Coolest part of the trip, easily for me, um, was the Sea of Galilee. It is very untouched. It's hard to build around the Sea of Galilee, so they leave it alone for the most part. This was right outside our hotel. Um, I wasn't exactly supposed to be there, which is not the only time on the trip that I can say that. Um, they had it fenced off, and I went the first night, our hotel's right behind me, and said, hey, can I please go there? And they said, well, it's not impossible. And morning two, I went back and asked again, and they said, you know, it's just a lake. Why do you want to see it? And what I meant to say was, you know, I'm from a faraway place and I just want to see it. What I actually said is, well, I'm an American. And they said, here's the key. Um, so I got to see it. But the, the reeds are really tall. I can't see my hotel from where I'm at. Um, not facing that direction, but turn around, it's the same view. Um, so kind of cool to be in that spot that's just untouched where, um, where Christ was. Here's a prettier picture, though, of the Sea of Galilee. This is taken from the Mount of Beatitudes. And it's a story that I had read um, hundreds of times growing up. You teach it in Sunday school. And God connected a couple dots for me because going and standing on the Mount of Beatitudes, I then understood that Christ taught about the Beatitudes on the Mount of Beatitudes, which is deeper than that just sounded. Um, to get a geographical point, you have Mount of Beatitudes here. Up here would have been the Roman city of Tiberias. Down here would have been Magdala, which is where Mary Magdalene is from. On our side of the lake, on the far left side, you would have had Capernaum. You would have had, hello, um, you would have had Bethsaida a little bit farther inland. Um, they thought they found Bethsaida. Turns out they don't think they did anymore. So I want to go back and see the new one. Um, here's another picture, same mountain of Beatitudes here, Magdala here, Mount Arbel. You can barely see Tiberius on the far side. Capernaum would have been opposite that. Um, all that geography to say that this really does move. That's insane. Um, kind of what I realized standing on that hillside is just how far Christ went to reach the people there. He's not teaching in a synagogue, which is not a bad thing, not demeaning synagogues, but this isn't what that was. This was him walking into their everyday lives. And this wasn't a special occasion. It's not like the Israelites got up, opened their Facebook page and saw, oh look, two friends are interested in going to an event. I think I'll go too. Um, this was just Christ reaching out to them, not waiting for them to come to him, he went to them. Um, I'll get a little heretical. Let's say that the New Testament hasn't happened yet. And the last book of the Bible we have is the book of Malachi and Christ hasn't been born. And then through some twisted prophecy, he's actually born in Athol, Idaho and he's teaching around the Sea of Coeur d'Alene. Um, what would that look like? And what would it look like if he showed up in our everyday lives and just started teaching and encouraging? Um, I don't think if he showed up at Revelation Church, he would see this, but I don't think he would see the cleaned up version of a Sunday morning if he were to walk into my life. Um, he would definitely see a sinner in need of a savior and someone needing that encouragement and that time with him. So how odd is it that I don't give that to him? Um, I think where I fail as a Christian and what I, I didn't realize this until I went up on that hill, um, but where I fail as a Christian is I let my life be way too structured. Um, I get really wigged out when my routine changes. 
I had the check tire pressure light come on in my car and it took me three days to figure out that I needed to do something about it, fortunately before it went flat. Um, but I allow my structured time with the Lord, my Sunday morning, my scheduled devotion time to carry me through the rest of the week rather than spending time with him throughout that routine. And I kind of wonder how many encouragements have I missed in my life because I'm not letting him walk into it. How many times and how different would my life be if I spent time with him while I'm working out, while I'm cleaning my house, and letting him encourage me through that, as opposed to saying, okay, Lord, you have 15 minutes between 4 p.m. and 4.15, and then I have to move on to something else. Basic, he didn't have to take me to the other side of the world to show me that, but I'm glad he did, and if he wants to do it again, I'll take it. Um, Mount Arbel is in the background. I don't think you can really see it, um, but it goes flat and then it goes straight down. Something similar to that is Mount Arbel. Um, these little triangles that you can see in the background, those are little caves, and they found weapons in them. There was a battle that was fought on this cliff face between the Romans and somebody, um, but they had elevators, they had ramps, kind of a weird place to fight a battle, um, but they managed it. We're on this hillside, and um, Corey, if you know him, he was the pastor that kind of brought all this together um, on the U.S. side, and he's standing and looking at the view. And our tour guide, Peter, um, who's from Israel, had said, Corey, you're too close. You can't stand there. And so Corey backs up. In the meantime, I'm trying to get a picture, and I look, and two feet closer to the edge, there's a spot where as long as I stand really still and there's no stiff wind coming, I would be okay. So I kind of looked over and, okay, Peter, can I just stand right right there? I just, I, and that's about the point that he put his hand over his face and said, oh, sir, your insurance does not cover stupidity. It was worth it. I'm alive. Um, I don't know of anything significant that happened on Mount Arbel, to be honest. I'm sure it did. The Sea of Galilee was kind of where life happened. But it's a good vantage point. Um, you've got Magdala down here. It's newly excavated. Oh, you can see it. I didn't even catch that. There's the new excavation um, of Magdala. You can actually see then where the Sea of Galilee has dropped in the waterline. Um, Mount of Beatitudes over here. Bethsaida. Um, and Capernaum over here somewhere, Tiberias across the Sea of Galilee on our side of it. We know of a story in John chapter 6 where people crossed from Tiberias over to Capernaum, so getting a little bit of um, surrealness when you're standing there and you can look over this shoulder and there's Tiberias and over this shoulder, here's the synagogue in Capernaum. This is a Byzantine-era synagogue, so not first century. They know that because um, it's more of a rectangle than it is a square, but same kind of design. Here's the first century part of that. They built it on top of the first century synagogue, and so here's the actual synagogue where Jesus taught, I am the bread of life, um, to the people. I don't know if that's geographically where he stood exactly, but it was a synagogue where he was. They also know of a disciple who lived there. His name was Peter, and that is his house. They built a church on it, but fortunately, they left the house alone. Um, archaeologists, historians, they quoted anywhere from 95 to 98% sure that's where Peter lived, which is pretty good in the world of archaeology, so kind of cool to see. We went from there to Tel Dan, not what you ex expect Israel to look like. It's very green, very lush, very beautiful. I felt really bad, honestly, for Corey because he was trying to get us through this site and all of us were sitting with cameras going, this is so pretty. Um, I brought home over 1,900 picture and video files from this trip and a lot of them were in the area of Tel Dan. I may or may not have caused a little bit of trouble in Tel Dan. 
Um, getting up was okay. Getting down, interesting story. This is the, um, at Tel Dan, this is Abraham's gate. Um, you can see the, the stones going in an archway. So for a long time, they thought the Romans invented arches, and they found this gate and realized that's not true. Um, but that's the gate that Abraham would have walked through when he walked into the city. A little bit of history about Tel Dan, Old Testament. I will very much summarize this story for you. But you have Solomon, King Solomon. He dies. Rehoboam takes over. People go to Rehoboam and say, hey, dude, your dad wasn't very nice. Give us a break. Rehoboam says, ha, 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 fat chance. I'm going to be worse than Solomon was, so have fun with that. Then eventually Jeroboam comes to power. Well, by this point, Israel is actually two kingdoms. You have the northern and the southern, and Jerusalem is in the southern. Jeroboam is up north at Tel Dan. And he knows that every three years, the Israelites have to go down to Jerusalem. That's a problem for him. He doesn't want them going to the other kingdoms. So he builds a couple of altars. Here's the one at Tel Dan. Sorry that it's grainy. Um, somebody went all the way to Israel and didn't take a picture of it. I don't know what she was thinking. But that's what it looks like. Um, and so he basically told the Israelites, you don't have to leave. Here's an altar worship here. The point was made in this spot that um, when someone has, what's in someone is going to come out when they have authority and when they have fear. And we can see that more than 2,000 years later, what Jeroboam left behind. And so we were really challenged to kind of take inventory of our lives and how we respond in those situations because what's going to be left behind when we're gone? Speaking of which, we went to Caesarea Philippi, also northern Israel. Um, this is a badly framed picture of um, what it would have looked like. You can see the huge cliff face. You can see the temples um, that are made to honor the god Pan. A little bit of trivia for you. The story goes that the um, false god would wander around dressed up in disguises and scare people and then laugh because they were laughing at something that wasn't real. Or I'm sorry, they were afraid of something that wasn't real. That is where we get our modern day word panic. Kind of cool. But you can see where the temple was. You can see where the shrines were, the big holes in the wall that go all the way up the cliff face. Um, this is ironically where Christ takes his disciples to ask, who does the world say that I am and who do you say that I am? So he puts himself in a setting of false gods to ask, basically, do you believe that I'm real? Um, which I had never seen that before, so that was cool to see. You have Mount Gamla, which is a small mountain. It actually um, is named after a camel, if you see it from the um, southern side, it looks like a camel. I couldn't get a good picture of it, but um, you can see on the lower right the excavation that they're doing. They've just started it. Um, when you go to Israel and you go to these sites, you start to notice the pattern, which you can't really see, but you can see that there's stuff under the dirt, basically. So they've got a while to go before that's going to be excavated. The story around um, Mount Gamla is that when the Romans took over the, um, sorry, the country of Israel and they are chasing the Israelites out of it and conquering them, they surround the Israelites on this mountain and they fight through the defenses. And it becomes obvious to the Israelites that we're going to die. And they decide it is better to die as free men than live as slaves for the Romans. And so they carry that out until there are two people left. And the two people left decide, well, if we make peace with the Romans, then we have a shot at life. And so they surrender. And the Romans say to at least one of them, <coughs> excuse me, you can live, um, but you have to write down um, 
what happens, and that's just your lot in life, is to write down what our daily life is like and what we do. And they renamed him Flavius Josephus, who's the famous historian that we put a lot of weight in. So the question was asked, if he got to live at the mercy of the Romans, how much can we trust this guy? Because he's going to make the Romans look good, and the Israelites look bad, and it will be bias. Um, the answer that came back to that was that, well, when it comes to the heroism of the Romans versus the um, non-heroism of the the Israeli people, you can kind of take what you want from that. Um, but as far as the non-biased parts, he's always been dead on. And so that's why we can still put a lot of trust in what he has to say. Um, this is Jericho. We got to go there. This is also, by the way, the region they believe Christ was in when he was tempted for 40 days and 40 nights. Um, it says that he was in the wilderness, which they don't describe the Sea of Galilee as being desert. Um, we would because we have North Idaho, but um, they would not have. Also, there are tons of natural caves in this area, so you can imagine 40 days and 40 nights, he would have needed somewhere to stay. Um, so that was kind of cool. What you're looking at is the watchtower in Jericho, and this is a brand brand new excavation. They really haven't gotten that far, a couple of years old maybe, um, and they only excavate four to six weeks out of the year. So it takes many, many years to get these sites excavated. The historian leading this has said that there is absolutely no proof that the Israelites walked around the wall and that it came tumbling down per the biblical account. Um, and you cannot see the site without having that in the back of your head. Um, our response to that is, you just started excavating, we'll wait. I can't wait to see what um, evidence pops up. It's still buried under the sand. You can kind of see um, the lower part of the wall um, around Jericho. We did ask our tour guide if there was anywhere to get purple slushies on our way, if you've ever seen Veggie Tales, but um, we didn't explain a slushie to our sewer guide very well, much less why we wanted one, so um, we surrendered that. This is also where I met Sam. Isn't he cute? Um, he did try to kiss me. I kind of drew a line there. But he was really fun to ride. I wouldn't want to go long distances on the back of a camel. This is what they call progress. Um, but really sweet. Um, we went to, where did we go? Masada. We are at Masada. Um, this is really close to the Dead Sea. It's kind of um, in the background where that candle holder is. Desert, wilderness, nothing here. Um, Masada was made by King Herod. He wanted a fortress to go to when um, things went wrong for him. He built three fortresses um, and seven palaces. But he looked around, and you can kind of see it in the background how high the mountains are. And he said, no, that's not good enough. I want you to take a mountain, put it on top of another mountain, and then make it flat. Um, so that's what they did. So this is probably about one-third of the mountain. There's definitely more on top and on the bottom. Um, he built two palaces on the area of Masada. Masada is not that big. So basically, Masada was two palaces, and that was it. Um, and what fortress wouldn't be complete without a bathhouse? I mean, if you have to go in hiding, you may as well go in style, right? Um, the pillars down here, these are actually ovens. They heat the floor on top. And then the hot air also comes through those bricks, and you can see the holes in them. So they heat the air from behind the walls, um, which is kind of cool. But that's not what Masada is known for. Masada is known for um, the revolt that the Israelites had against the Romans. So um, being on the Mount of Masada, which is really tall, 
you can see these squares here. This is where the Romans would have been camping out while they're trying to take over Masada. They're not trying to take it because it is a strategic place to go. It's in the middle of the desert. There's nothing there. Water has to be brought in. The only natural water source is the Dead Sea, which not very good to drink. The mineral content is really strong. Um, you also don't want to wash your face in it, which why I had to learn that the hard way. I don't know, but it hurts. Um, so not a place they needed strategically, but the political side of it, you revolt against us, we're going to win, you're going to lose. It was a political move. So eventually they break through the Israeli defenses. You can actually see the ramp right there where they're coming up the mountain. Um, and then they, uh, they break through the wall, they go back to their camps. Whoa, sorry. I'll replace it. Um, they go back to their camp. The Israelites, same thing. It's better to live as free men than um, die under the Romans. Masada was the last place that Israelites um, had Jewish sovereignty in the land of Israel um, for many, many years. And that happened um, just slightly after 0 AD. Moving from there to Jerusalem, um, this is the classic viewpoint. You go up to the Mount of Olives, and about halfway up, they have these huge view um, areas where you can see it. You cannot get Mount Moriah and Mount Zion in one shot. Um, I tried. But I want to kind of knit a few pictures together for you. This is where we kind of looked at the last um, week of Christ's life happens on these three hills. Um, you have Temple Mount here, you have Zion here, and there's no difference between the two. That is a modern thing, as they have built one city on top of another. Eventually, they filled up the valley, so it's now one mountain. Um, but you have the little gray building here is um, the House of Caiaphas. Right behind it, there's a little building, and that would have been the Last Supper. If you look then to your right, you see Mount Moriah. This is the Temple Mount, um, which I didn't know this, but it's actually this whole thing. Um, all the trees, there's a garden you can go up there and walk around in, really pretty. You also have the Eastern Gate, which you can see is blocked off. The history behind that is that the prophecy says that when Jesus comes back, he's going to enter through the Eastern Gate, so they blocked it off so that he couldn't use it. I kind of wonder how that'll work for them. But um, And then you have the Valley of Kidron here, and then if you keep looking right, Valley of Kidron, Temple Mount there. You have the Mount of Olives. This is a Jewish um, cemetery here. So on Palm Sunday, Christ would have gone down this mountain up to the temple using the shepherd's gate, not pictured. Um, and then on the Last Supper, it would have been to the left. They would have come through the Kidron Valley down back to the Garden of Gethsemane, which is somewhere in here, right here. Um, looks something like that. You have the olive trees. Um, the larger the olive tree, the longer it's been there. So they have um, olive trees that are over 1,500 years old. Um, you're not even allowed to touch them, actually. They will kind of come after you if you try. Um, but they've got some really big olive trees there. It was a really cool spot to kind of hang out and have a devotion and kind of reflect on um, that night that Christ would have been there and making um, ultimately the decision that he'd already made. But verbalizing that decision um, to die on the cross for, um, for the sins of the world. He would have been taken back through the Kidron Valley, back to the house of Caiaphas for one of the trials, and then ultimately um, 
he would have been taken to the Antonio Fortress, which is this silver dome here, and then he would have been taken to Golgotha and crucified. Um, I can't actually point out where Golgotha is, unfortunately, because I can't see it, but it's in there. They built a church on it, um, which is fantastic and very artistic, and I appreciated the art. It was beautiful, but I didn't get to see Golgotha as it would have been, so it's hard to point out. There are two theories about where Golgotha would have been. One is now in the city of Jerusalem. The other is on the outskirts of it. The reason that they don't think the second one works is because the, the idea of the concentric circles is true in Jerusalem as well. You would have crucified Christ closer to the city walls than the second spot. Also, the first spot would have been seen traditionally for thousands of years versus the second spot was only recognized in the 1920s. So um, they looked at it saying, well, it's not that far outside of Jerusalem. And what they're missing is it's not that far outside of Jerusalem now. But um, Back then, it would have been too far out. But you can always go to Israel if you'd like and look at it yourself. One of the last places that we went to was a place called Yad Vashem. Um, this is the world's largest Holocaust memorial in existence. Um, kind of grainy, sorry. They don't actually allow you to take pictures, so I had to kind of pull from Google. But you can see the cement structure starts here, goes underground, and comes back out the other side of the mountain. And they have it lit by natural lighting. So the sunlight goes in there. And as you start, um, the displays are showing what life would have been like pre-Holocaust. And then as you get into the depravity of the Holocaust, I keep bumping that thing, um, the ghettos, the concentration camps, the death camps, you're going farther underground and then coming out the other side when they talk about the liberation and the, um, the end of World War II, the resistance, things like that. Definitely a tough um, thing to go through. They took advantage of quite literally every inch of space that they could so that you feel like you're really there. The displays in the picture are um, life-size. You can see the height of the people in relation to the height of the people touring it. So you don't get this little isolated picture. It's kind of in your face. There were definitely times that you wanted to just reach through the wall and do something. Um, and it was kind of haunting that you couldn't. But what really got me at Yad Vashem um, wasn't so much the death camps and the concentration camps. I don't know if it's because I've seen that before. Um, history definitely places an emphasis on it. What got me really was the propaganda that happened at the very beginning. Um, seeing people depicted as these flea-ridden burden on society is just heartbreaking. And it really challenged me to think, how do I view people? Do I view them as less valuable or less loved by God if I disagree with their lives and the choices they're making? There is about midway through a display um, that it's a, you can kind of see they created rooms and it's a room, four walls. Um, and in the glass cases around the perimeter, they have, um, that are on the ground, you can read the letters that the Jewish officials had sent out to different countries saying, please take us in. And then around the walls, they have painted the responses of the countries. So you can't help but stand in the middle of this room and just feel trapped. And that has to be how they really felt. Um, and so looking at these responses, I honestly, I'm as patriotic as they come. I love my country. And it was a little weird to see my country up there and our response to the Holocaust um, early on. There was another country that had said, we're our own country, we have our own problems to deal with and we're not taking you in. We won't take another problem, um, which had to be so hard to hear. The, um, 
the response of the world, they really didn't respond until they had a choice. There's another quote um, that was written by a Jewish official post-World War II that just said, the Christian is not our friend. We will never rely on them again because we reached out to them and they did nothing. And that's just not the Christian I want to be. Um, we live, or the world didn't respond until they had to, until the issue of Herr Hitler got to a point where it threatened their lives. But prior to that, they really didn't. Um, we live in this day and age where I don't think people are seen as God-created beings with a God-given purpose for their lives. Um, this is the Hall of Names, and you can see all the pictures up here of Holocaust victims. Down here, um, they have just books of names of all the people that died in the Holocaust, all the Jews. We calculated it. If you were to read just the first name of every Jew that died in the Holocaust, you would be saying names nonstop, 24 hours a day for 69 and a half days is how many Jews alone died in the Holocaust. I think we live in a day and age where we are in relative peace in comparison to this. Um, I don't wake up every day wondering if my house is going to be there, which is good because I work at um, my house, but um, I don't worry about my life. I don't feel threatened, and so I feel like I have a choice as to how I view people, as to whether I will promote that they are God-created and that they have a God-created purpose, and what do I do with that? Because honestly, I see in myself that I kind of shut it all out and go, you live your life and have your problems, and I'll live my life and have mine, and going through there, I realize that's just not a reality that I can do anymore. I kind of got really challenged to ask the Lord, okay, God, do you want me to be more involved in this? Do you want me to be willing to be uncomfortable to show people that I 100% disagree with that you love them? And don't ask that question if you don't want him to answer because he answers it, um, and it's uncomfortable. <laughs> but it was kind of a cool mind switch. Um, Dark place to end this morning, I do apologize. It was a dark place to end the trip, too. We did have one more day, um, so if that is standing in the way of you going to Israel, please don't let it. Um, you kind of can't go without seeing Yad Vashem. It's an important part of Israel's history, but it's certainly not the only thing there to see. I think the biggest thing that I walked home with in going to all of these places um, was really the length that Christ went to to reach out to us. I think if he had lived, um, I'll take you back just a little bit, You've got um, Temple Mount to the right, Caiaphas's house here. Over that far hill is Bethlehem, where Christ was born, um, which was really fun to see. But um, if he had lived there his whole life, come into Jerusalem and been crucified, I think God would have honored that sacrifice. But I don't think that was enough for Christ. I think he wanted to reach deeper, and he wanted to do more. And standing in not just one, but multiple places all over Israel, where Christ walked out into the people, getting to know them, breaking bread with them, hearing about their daily lives, encouraging them. He wanted to build relationship with them in the everyday. And there's, I tried my best with pictures. There's no way to convey the reality of standing in real places where these events happened. Um, and getting to know Christ, not, um, I had heard, rabbit trail, um, I'd heard before, how cool is it going to be that you get to walk where Jesus walked? And I thought, right on, I want to do that. And I got to Israel and I didn't really care. The truth is I can't relate to being God in human flesh, doesn't work that way. Um, 
but I can relate to real people going through real things. And so I got to experience Christ as they would have. And that was the major impact that I came back with. People ask, is it safe to travel to Israel? It absolutely is. Um, that's one question I'll answer from here. If you have more, I can totally answer later. Um, but we were not trying to take pictures amongst missiles coming in. It was safe. There were many times I went off by myself, um, heard from the Lord, had so many devotions. It was a great chance to not just get away, but get away to where he was. Um, so if you get the chance, I would go. Um, thank you for putting up with me. I'm sorry this wasn't a normal week. Um, I hope you still got something out of it. I know we normally have communion, um, but Zach, I'll let you open that up. So thank you, guys. Thank you, Sarah. I appreciate your taking the time to do that. Um, one of the things that I really appreciate about our faith as followers of Jesus is that it is grounded in location. It is grounded in physicality. Um, if you study world religions at all, um, you can you can follow the Buddha. You don't really care about the Buddha. Buddha, he he said some stuff. Live your life that way. That's fine. Um, you can um, be a Hindu, and there's kind of a mystical system of, of beliefs that the Hindus have, and that's fine. Um, but in order to be a Christian, you have to, you have to connect with some reality, some, some real physical life. And seeing the places where real people walked and talked and had dinner together uh, I think is really helpful for us so far away from that to reconnect to the, the real physicality of our faith. Um, we don't just follow a set of ideas. We follow a person. Um, Jesus, the, the God-man, the, the second person of the Trinity becomes a human person and lives a human life and walks the streets and deals with the heat and you know, eats olives and just all of these everyday things that are that we are represented in those pictures, um, and that has to have some effect on us. We can't just live our lives completely disconnected from the world around us. We, um, some of us, thank you for those of you that went on the prayer walk yesterday. It was freezing, but we had an opportunity to walk around town and pray for people and pray for businesses, and see the streets of Coeur d'Alene. And there's something tangible about that that matters to the faith of the Christian. And we see that as well in, in the communion meal. We, we, we gather every week, and we take the bread, and we take the cup. And Jesus says, do this and remember me. And it's not an accident that he uses these normal everyday things, bread and, and wine. And he, in, in doing this, he connects this ritual, this ceremony to this long line of just everyday things. I mean, thinking about the bread, somebody ba baked the bread, somebody grew the wheat, somebody transported the wheat, somebody, you know, there's this long line of hands and feet and hearts and minds that are touching these things. Same thing with the wine. And, and Jesus, in using these everyday items, is reinforcing for us just the gritty 
nature of what it means to be a follower of Christ. And, and I love Sarah's encouragement to be among the people. Like we need to be out living our lives where we work, where we go to school, where we recreate, getting into what's sometimes dirty and gritty and difficult and complicated because that's where Jesus was. And uh, if, we're, if we're Christians in this place, if that's, if that's the name we would call ourselves, then that's what we should be looking for. That's what we should be striving for. By the power of God's spirit in us, he's making us more like Jesus. And so as um, uh, we sing a little bit more, as we remind one another of the faith we have in Christ, the communion table is open. Um, come up and grab the bread and the cup and take it back to your seat and just give some thought to just your every day. What does it look like to follow Jesus where you're at? Um, what does it look like to bring Christ into the office or bring Christ into the classroom or the coffee shop? Um, and, and what are the things, the real life everyday things that he would have you be a part of in that? Uh, so um, let's pray and, and we'll sing a little bit. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.